Warning, this show of ours, before I forget, may contain some themes and ideas and other crap that you may find offensive. We're sorry. Listener discretion is advised. Also, the opinions and ideas expressed in this show, this podcast, this thing of ours called Before I Forget, are our opinions alone. They do not represent the Army or any other organization. It's just us talking. Anyway, thank you for listening to Before I Forget and enjoy the show. Hey everybody, it's Tyree and Kevin, and welcome to Before I Forget, our awesome show with our awesome guest, Kevin, say hi. Hey, I'm dying over that music, man. Right? <laughs> if you if you heard that music just now, you know who's here, because it was a special request that I have never done for not nobody, not never. This a person, lot of negatives this, in Yeah, a whole lot of them. This guest has his own theme music for our show. Mr. Walker, say hello. Well, hey, hello, Brown, and hello, Johnson, and I thank you for the uh, baggy trousers intro. That's some, some great music. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. We do not own the uh, whatever's to that, so there you go. Rights or something. There you go. So, As far as I'm concerned, the world owns the rights to baggy trousers. It's that good. Right? Okay. I wonder if baggy trousers would agree. I mean, we're not getting paid for this. It's just this is like us playing it out loud through a radio, through a radio yeah. uh, window. So here we go. Let's not even let's not even waste any time. As usual, Kevin, let's get right into this. Yes, let's do it. All let's right, jump right in uh, head first. So, uh, what made you join the United States Army? Well. I had, uh, in high school, like a lot of people do, I'd talked to a recruiter and uh, took the ASVAB, and I had um, always had an interest in U.S. military history, and I like playing G.I. Joe, and I like watching G.I. Joe. And so I talked in high school to an Army recruiter, um, but when I talked, this was my senior year of high school would have been 98 into 99. And so I talked to someone in 98, and there was no war going on then. And when I looked at what the army had to offer, I would have only accepted being a real soldier. And that to me meant being an infantryman uh, because everybody else supports them. Uh, so because there was no real war going on and it was more or less peacetime and I was ignorant to what was you know, going on in the Balkans and other places, uh, I didn't join the army and I just, I waited for a while and uh and what really got me to to finally join the army later in 2002 were the events of September 11th. To be honest with you. All right. Uh, speaking of September 11th, where were you when uh, all that happened? Uh, well, I'm from the west side of Green Bay, born and raised. I was living on the west side of Green Bay on Cleveland Street, sharing a, a lower level apartment with my friend uh, Lopez. And I woke up in the morning, and I was sitting on my red velvet couch, and I turned on the TV, and this is back before the digital 
uh, over the airwaves. So if you guys remember how TV used to look with the just the rabbit ears, you get that grainy mm-hmm. kind of look to the TV screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I got up, sitting on my couch, um, turned on some news channel, and I saw uh, that one of the towers would have been, you know, Tower 1 uh, was hit and was burning. And I sat watching that, and then I watched uh, the second plane come in. When I saw that, I went and woke up my roommate and said, hey, man, you got to check this shit out. Mm. And so then we watched that for a little bit. And at the time, uh, I was an Arby's ranger. I was slinging roast beef at a restaurant down the road. <laughs> Arby's so, ranger right on. Yeah, slay, so I had to get up and go to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, and I after watching that on the TV, I got up, you know, got ready, went to work. And I remember what I remember from that day is uh, – uh, the skies were quiet and clear and there was no air traffic up there because after you know, 9.30 or after 10 o'clock, 10.30, they just shut down the whole U.S. airspace. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember, too, uh, as I was outside the Arby's parking lot, this fool comes riding by on his bicycle just yelling, we're going to war, we're going to war. <laughs> and my friend was with me and he's like, you know, you know, with who? We just saw this on the TV, like, you know, we were watching people change their behavior and become hysterical before our eyes, and it was something to behold. Right, right in front of your face, like uh, wow! I didn't, I never thought about that. Like the, uh, the, the, the paranoid person out there listening and watching all this happen, and automatically, well, not really paranoid because fuck, I, I thought the same thing. I just didn't scream it out loud. Yeah, in fact, you know, I, I can say that I sat on my couch and I watched the news and I watched a building burning, but deeper within you, like I think everyone didn't know what they were seeing. They were seeing a a shift in everything that we'd come to understand that was normal and and solid and, uh, and everything about our, our lives changed after that. Mm -hmm. That guy on the bike gives me a Paul Revere vibes. The guy on the bike. We're going to war. We're going to war. The oh. are coming. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, that's kind of what it was like. It's just this crazy guy at a ten speed is riding by, saying that like out of the blue. It is interesting to kind of hear that story from like uh, I mean, because I was you know I was in basic and you know Brown was. You said you were just starting basic, right? Yep. Yeah, and so like I mean like with with the rest of the world, um, in their civilian lives, uh, and 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 like just. Just that, just that perspective of it, you know, just the, the, the civilian mindset behind it is just really interesting to kind of to hear that. Yeah, and that was so. I didn't, I didn't do much different than most people. I I sat to over the coming months watching the news. Uh, my old man was a news junkie. I could go over there any time of day, and he'd be sitting around watching Fox News and watching all the ever breaking news. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I. So after a few months, uh, come February of 2002, um, I had quit my Arby's job, um, or they had fired me because I had showed up one day uh, wearing a Hawaiian shirt because it was a much nicer set of apparel than the Arby's <laughs> uniform. <laughs> He's just picking his own <laughs> uniform. <laughs> That's awesome. And it was great. I got so much <clears throat> wonderful feedback from all the customers in there saying, oh, that's great, man. It's a cool shirt, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> But the district manager, about this. yeah, some, somebody complained though. Some Karen out there, some wet blanket. And anyway, 
<laughs> Boss called up and said, I heard you're not in your uniform. You got to put on your Arby's clothes. And I said, that's not going to happen. And, uh, and then another manager came in to relieve me in place and took my keys and I was done. <laughs> the end. The end of your yeah. Arby's career. That's right. So I ended my Arby's career and I started my short lived army career. Da, da, da. <clears throat> when did you officially go to uh, basic training? Oh, well, it was right after I talked to the recruiter and this is something I got to share with you because it's funny because I'd made the decision to finally join the army uh, in February, early February of 2002. I went down to the recruiter's office and I went in the first guy I talked to, I just said, uh, I'd like to join the army. I'd, I want to shoot guns and blow shit up. Hell yeah. And so, so the recruiter says, Oh, okay. You want to be maybe forward observer, call in artillery and all that. And I said, no, 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 no. I want to be in the infantry. And this guy looked at me and says, Oh, I see. You don't need to talk to that guy. And he points his thumb to some back office. And, uh, and I go back there the <laughs> and there's this room. guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> shitbag lounge <laughs> and I get back there and there's this guy it's a pseudonym I'm going to use so there's a sergeant white back there okay and and Shout out like, to sergeant uh, white. yeah right wherever you are dude <laughs> I said oh, yeah I want to join the infantry he's like oh man it's so great you get this blue cord and everything you'll love it and I was sold <laughs> hell yeah hell yeah that's how they got me too it was the blue cord and the blue discs uh, the blue discs, yeah, I can't forget the blue discs. <laughs> you know, it's really funny, right? Like, because you know, the the job of the infantry is literally combat, right? And like, you know, they, that was the that was the whole reason behind the the blue discs and the the CIB and EIB and, and the cord and all that stuff back in the you know was it World War Two? Because you know they were having a hard time getting people to join the infantry, and they're like, well, what if we give them some shiny things? Flare, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, we, we'll, we'll give them some flare, exactly. <laughs> It's like and, we're uh, working at TGIF before it was cool. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and it worked. It it worked, you know, and it still That's works right. all these years later. Love it. Yeah. Oh, trinkets and ribbons. <laughs> all right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing what, what soldiers will do for, you know, trinkets and ribbons. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, and $16,000. So that recruiter <laughs> sent me down to the MEP station in Milwaukee uh, not long after I talked to him. And, um, I said I wanted to be in the infantry, and that was not going to be a problem. And I was going to be able to get um, an eight thousand uh, dollar MOS bonus and an eight thousand dollar seasonal bonus for sixteen grand for four years. And I thought that was a okay by me, but at the time, and Hell then it was yeah. uh, March, March of '02. I was off to Benning, March seventh. What did you think of uh, what did you think of basic training? Was it was it a tough deal for you? Was it a walk in the park? Did you did you make any friends? Oh uh, yeah, I did make some friends. Um, I've got I was just going over some pictures today, and I found one picture from Leighton Basic Training of a bunch of us taking at some church or chapel because you know on Sundays you could get out of doing you know, common area cleaning if you just went to some religious service. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and I was looking at that picture, and there were a number of us there, um, and Stern included, who went on to be in Bravo Company One Two Six. Shout out to Stern. What's up? Okay, so uh, basic training's done. Tons of fun, memories saved, and we go on to uh, 
Well, before we even go into Germany, uh, were you in any, any relationships at that point? Um, no, I, at the conclusion of basic training, um, my mother and my father came down to Benning along with my older brother and they were there for the graduation. And my old man was the one who put that nice blue cord on my shoulder and uh, we were both misty eyed. Sweet. Um, and I, I graduated from basic training. I think it was July 3rd of 2002. And so then the Independence Day holiday, we got to celebrate on Fort Benning with fireworks and all that there. Um, <clears throat> and that was, uh, it was also a cool opportunity. We took the time to get off post and we got to see uh, the Confederate Naval Museum that's in uh, Columbus, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And we went and checked out the uh, site of the former uh, prisoner of war camp in Andersonville. Wow. And those are right up my alley. I used to like, and I still enjoy uh, going to Civil War reenactments and learning about uh, American history from that time. I have seen that kind of stuff, and I I, I never really understood it. Um, I, I guess uh, when you when you dial back with all the technology with everything and just really focus on what's going on there, I guess it's just like you were actually there back in the day, right? Yeah, well, you know, we are combat veterans. Uh, we've been to war. Mm-hmm. War has existed a long time. Human nature doesn't change much over time. It's just the tools that we use. Yeah, true. <clears throat> yeah. So, <clears throat> so um, now, okay, we can we can go into uh, landing in Germany. How, how did that feel? Yeah, that wasn't too bad. I got to go over to Germany. There were seven of us from my basic training company that all went over together and wound up in Bravo 126. No shit. Seven of you guys? Yeah, seven of us. We were Sturkey's Seven Dwarves. <laughs> Shout out you to guys Sturkey, were, man. I haven't heard yeah. that name in a minute. You guys were all down in Kosovo, and uh, when the seven of us showed up, uh, he, Sturkey was the rear D commander as an E5. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and uh, and here I've got the list of these seven seven dwarves here. It was Stamper, Spiros, Sizemore, Stern, Snyder, Weiss, and myself. What a good crew, man. Yeah, and Stamper, <laughs> Sizemore, Snyder, and I, we all went to second platoon. Yep. Oh yeah, you did fucking roughnecks. Did y'all know we <laughs> hey, I gotta, did y'all know we were we were called the roughnecks at the time? Yeah. So while we were in Kosovo, um, I think we had just we just got Sergeant Sweeney, and he was trying to. We, we took a vote to change the name of the platoon because uh, he he asked, "Are we going to change the name of the platoon from Rubnecks to something?" I think he had something in mind, but he he did it the right way and asked uh, if we could change the name of the platoon. What's really interesting about that is I don't know if Second Platoon uh, Bravo Company is still called the Rubnecks, but I do know that. Um, and maybe I, I'll, def, I'll definitely, when we have uh, Dustin Humphrey on later on, I want him to tell this story again. But he, I don't know if y'all know this, but he went back and was the platoon sergeant of second platoon um, years later. No Did know that? I didn't, I know, didn't that. know that, no. Yeah, I didn't know that either. And they were still called the Roughnecks. And the platoon got together and requested to change the name. And he was like, no, fuck that. No. <laughs> we are the Roughnecks. That's we it. are the Roughnecks, and we are going to be the standard of the Roughnecks that I know from when I was a Roughneck. Bottom line. 
I yeah, wish man, I great. wish a motherfucker would have tried to change the name of our shit. Like, uh, to me, uh, being if I had stayed in the military, like to come back and be a roughneck platoon sergeant, fuck man, man, that would have been that's. I mean, that's such a like a neat honor. He didn't even know that he was going back to one two six, right? He just ended up there. And hey, man, you're the platoon sergeant of uh, of second platoon Bravo Company, mm-hmm. and like, what a great fucking honor! How cool is that, man? That's I think that's awesome. Yeah. Hits on glass, as we would say. <laughs> so, uh, you're in uh, any any funny rear D stories? Well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, right when we got there, Sturkey put Sizemore and I to work getting our our driver's licenses, our TMP licenses, so we could drive those bitchin' minivans everywhere. Sweet, we and, avoided uh, that. Oh man. <laughs> yeah, Sizemore and I, we got, we got our licenses. We didn't screw up well enough, I guess. And then we got tasked driving everywhere all the time. But Sturkey was good enough to give us downtime. So there was one Friday where I had Friday off because I had been driving her up late last night. I can't recall, but it was a Friday. And I had been off for the day. And as you guys know, um, if you don't want to get called for a hey, you do detail, what do you do? Look at me drink. Yeah, that's right. So I got day drunk. I went down to the little shop at, got my, I'd already been drinking in the barracks. And I went down to the shop at, cause I needed more. And so I got myself a 12 pack of Miller genuine draft. Oh yeah. MGD. Oh, your poor God, beer. Horrible. Tastes like earwax. It's just <laughs> not. <laughs> and, uh, so I was strolling back to, uh, to my barracks. And at the time I was living while you guys were gone, the rear D was all crammed into one building in, in the uh, headquarters and headquarters company barracks building. Mm-hmm. That was nice. That was a nice building by the way. Cause they had in room showers or and mm. bathrooms and it wasn't what we had in, in Bravo's barracks, but I digress. Um, on my way back to that luxury palace, I passed uh, a safety briefing taking place with all the rear D companies lined up there and, and I thought to myself, safety first, big red one. I'm going to go get my safety briefing on. <laughs> and so I, I walked over with my 12-pack, and I stood behind Bravo Sturkey's Bravo Company, and I listened into the safety briefing. Oh, man. And then after a minute, someone's like, hey, Sturkey, isn't that your guy back there with beer? <laughs> and... <laughs> And, you know, Sturkey came back. He's always smiling. I don't remember that guy ever yelling at me or being, like, really mad. So he came back good-naturedly, and I was a good, you know, young private. I went to parade rest with this 12-pack in my hand. <laughs> and naturally, the case broke, and beer started spilling out. Of course, because it has to. Now, beer is spilling out on the ground. It's as tempting as a grenade jump on. These guys from the formation just broke ranks and made for the beer. Someone put the kibosh on that, and Sturkey told me very gently to go back to uh, my barracks. Dude, I'm fucking crying. <laughs> and I got back to the barracks, and this is Hawaiian shirt night. We were all going to go out, Hawaiian shirt night, party. But before dinner time, I was I think I was done, and I laid down on my bed, and I think Stamper found me later, just <laughs> supine on my bed with my Hawaiian shirt on and I got a cigarette in between my fingers and my hand on my chest 
And the ash on that cigarette is the length of the cigarette. Legendary <laughs> ash. Yeah, just passed out. So that's that's one fun time that I think we all had there. If that Outside doesn't describe if that doesn't describe the most infantry like private thing to do. You know what I mean? They want to show up to this safety brief drunk with more beer. <laughs> In a Hawaii to, shirt, yeah, and you go to, and you go to parade rest, right? Because you, you know that's what you're supposed to do with the KCB. Exactly. Yeah, I mean it, that is just that is. Oh man, I wish I wish the army could be on that level today. <laughs> oh, that was a good time, I'll tell you. That was that was a lot of fun. So it's 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 oh. it's fair to say that you had a bit of bit of fun uh, back uh, before we we got back to, from Kosovo. We yeah we did we had a lot of fun. Um, and it wasn't all uh, surrounding alcohol. There was, uh, as you'll recall, the U.S. Army uh, Europe Command was in Heidelberg, mm-hmm. and there was there was some arms expo or some exposition of grown men's toys, and somebody said they just needed more bodies there. So um, a bunch of us just got call for a hey you detail to get in a van and go up to Heidelberg and walk around some arms expo all day and and be in uniform and that was kind of neat just to see all the different things that people were hawking that never got built oh that's pretty cool Mm -hmm. would have been been cool to see some of the cool things that uh, we haven't uh, got our hands on or you know never will I guess in that case oh never will no those are so much of that like future combat weapon system stuff that people were hawking then like so many other things it's just Way to get money. It's not that it's, yeah, yeah, dirty business. Yeah. But Sturkey, too, there was also, you know, I don't know, because I wasn't there before you guys deployed to Kosovo. Um, Some of us, we all, we all did training. We didn't train to this at the same tempo that we trained at when everyone had come back from Kosovo and we were a whole cohesive unit, but we still did training on the rear detachment. Um, and one time, Sturkey brought us over to Con Barracks, where there was an indoor, um, you call it a, a rifle range, but it it, it was a just a projection on a screen. Oh, yeah. And then we would use, did you use those pneumatic rifles that were just? Mm-hmm. It's called the EST 2000, Engagement Skill Trainer. Yeah. Thank you. That yeah. was cool as shit. <laughs> they were pretty. They were pretty new back then. Because I, I mean, when I went to basic in two thousand one, we had um, we didn't have the EST, but we had uh, something. I, I want to say similar, but definitely, it looked like a pinball machine, and it was. And it, it, it was Tyree. Did you ever use that thing? Yep, I remember. I remember it looked I like a. It looked like a. You're describing it perfectly, like a like a pinball machine almost, where uh, your rifle was. Uh, there was like a a plug, more or less that went into the machine and when you shot depending on where you aimed um mm-hmm. it would help you zero right it would register your hits and all that stuff well now uh and not to cut you off uh, but like the the est uh we i mean it's still very heavily used today so you can do all kinds of cool things on it like you can do scenario based training you i mean we, we use it in basic training before we even hit the uh, the live ranges with the rifles so that they can get familiar with shooting um without wasting the ammo and go through the the group and zero process, the qualification process, and and all that stuff. I mean, but you can use it on, you know, nine mils and fifty cals, and I mean everything. Two forties, two four nines. Yeah, it's pretty rad. I was just gonna say, uh, when I was in the reserves, we used to go all the time and uh, 
fuck around with those things. It's pretty cool. <clears throat> I feel like the reserves and guard probably use it a lot more than active duty does just because we don't exactly have the, the resources that yeah, exactly. Yeah. But anyway, so back to your story, Walker, sorry. Oh no, that was my story. Just I'm glad you guys remember that uh equipment too and could you know help fill in that stuff that I, I couldn't remember those little details. No, I yeah, it is it, I it is really anything. Go ahead. No, I was just saying I can't remember anything. I just remember that because it was it, when you described it, it was like it was like a pinball machine, kind of. It was like yeah. was it painted like a, a tan color? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, I, now I, that pinball machine thing you're talking about, I, I recognize that in my mind's eye from my basic training. The thing that Sturkey had us using uh, over at the con barracks, I remember it had like a on the wall was almost like a movie screen and it projected yeah. on that. Yeah. And, and we would watch, you know, human silhouettes, you know, kind of lumbering mechanically towards us. And then <laughs> I remember having a few of us online and we would, you know, uh, identify and engage targets that way. And that was just kind of a cool little game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the ESC was the upgrade uh, or the replacement to that thing. Um, because oh, okay. you, you could do so much more with it. Like I remember, uh, years ago, um, doing um, shoot don't shoot scenarios with it. So like you you uh, you are quote unquote a member of the squad going into this room, mm-hmm. and you know the next scene is you're now in the room and you have all of these targets and you have to very quickly engage or not engage depending on you know what they were holding. Um, did they have a hostage? Uh, was one of them holding? One of them was an IED scenario. So you 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 do a raid on a room where they have all this like bomb building stuff. There's like four or five guys in the room, two of which are holding AKs. One has nothing in his hands. And then one has what you would call like a suspicious device. Um, and so it's like a shoot, don't shoot scenario. Um, and it kind of trains you like, well, you know, should I shoot this person holding the random item in his hand or do I not? And I think it really definitely depends on like when you deploy to, because when we were there, um, that would have been something that you absolutely did shoot. But um, later on, you know, later deployments, you know, you, de- you definitely want to get like positive identification before you can engage this person. But unfortunately, you know, in, in this scenario, it was the remote to an IED that was live in the room. And if you didn't shoot the guy, it would detonate and everybody would die. So, um, Johnny, but it's Johnny on the spot <laughs> with the trigger, right? Yeah, but mm-hmm. I, it is it is pretty cool though because it does it does help you kind of sharpen those skills without wasting the ammo, without um, really like um, expending yourself and your energy and all that stuff because you're you know going through actual uh, going through room clearing without actually going through room clearing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just kind of it's just kind of a way to like train your your mind into seeing things very quickly. We got to use a lot of those machines uh, for the LAPD because. Uh you know, same kind of scenario, tactical training mm-hmm. where you have to use the correct uh, device to stop whatever's going on. So, you know, deadly force if necessary. Sometimes you got to taste, sometimes you baton or pepper spray or whatever, a front kick. But, uh, yeah, same thing. Cool, cool training. So let's not get bogged down with bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> right. We, uh... You finally, uh, at some point, right, get to meet us, meet the uh, second platoon because they were coming back from Kosovo. Were you? Yeah. Were you, you nervous uh, about that? Of course. Yeah. Because uh, you know, back on rear D, the rear detachment was very lax, and 
we were not crawling with people because most everyone was gone. So it was a very relaxed atmosphere. And, um, all you, <laughs> I got to help bring people in ones and twos. Um, because again, Sizemore and I had our licenses. So before the bulk of the, the unit came back from Kosovo, people were starting to filter in, um, ones and twos. And I can remember, I can't remember a name, but I remember driving out to pick up some NCO, some goddamn E5 from uh, whatever airfield you guys came back into. And uh, I remember trying to drive him to his destination, his house or something. And uh, I was just angry and mean and just <laughs> took over the wheel and he's like, kicked me out of my job. And, and so, so I got these little glimpses of what was to come. And then you all showed up just in force uh, one day. After. When did you guys come back from Kosovo exactly? Uh, it was mid-November. I don't remember the exact date. Uh, mid, mid to late November. <clears throat> yeah. yeah, I remember that because it was before Thanksgiving. I, yeah. I was able to, I think I dined with uh, Sergeant Sweeney's family for Thanksgiving. How did that go? I want to be. I'm, I'm that, being was, that was nice. Now. Yeah, yeah. You know, I found a dust bunny or two, but I didn't tell. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. The <laughs> uh, uh, one the before you guys all came back and you guys uh, the company sent back a whole like this vicious pack of corporals, um, <laughs> like the night. And I can't remember all their names, but it was just a half a dozen of these these guys, and they were mean. And you'll hear maybe some of the other guys who are on rear D. Uh, we have talked about just scrubbing that barracks over and over. And anyway, these these corporals just had us doing, you know, cleaning common areas all the time and making us pretend to be soldiers. And and it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't my bag. One day. I'd gone down to the library to get away from the company area and I came back from the library and one of these guys was like, Hey Walker, where were you? Well, I was down at the library, corporal. <laughs> what are you doing at the library? It's reading books. That's what people do at a library. <laughs> oh, hell no. Get down here. You know? And then stupid human tricks. <laughs> what are you doing reading? You fucking yeah. asshole. Reading, <laughs> reading motherfucker. You. <laughs> we're trying to be smart. Yeah. Oh, man. yeah, so there was a bit of that that went around. Um, and then you guys all did come back uh, en masse. And do you guys remember when uh, just outside the company's barracks building, there were those connexes with all of the bags and stuff in them? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there was some formation being held out there by those things. And I remember, you know, back then it was like, oh, everyone go get your Gore-Tex. Like, every. I remember in the army, everyone had to be uniform, mm -hmm. but I was always still me. So that didn't always fly. <laughs> and so everyone's like, all right, here's the uniform. Go get your Gore-Tex and come on out. And when I heard Gore-Tex, I just, in my mind, I heard, go get a winter jacket. So I went in and I got my field jacket. I put it on and I went out and I formed up with everyone. And I just remember <laughs> NCOs just coming out of the trees to give me grief. <laughs> you want to be different? You want to you want, you want to do your own thing? Well, yeah. Or right, get down low crawl. All right. <laughs> you know, they got my field jacket all muddy, and I wasn't too happy. 
but <laughs> what that did was you guys helped me realize right quick that I needed to pay attention to the exact wording <laughs> and to not impart my own, you know, <laughs> suppositions, if you will, or yeah. guesswork. If, if I saw it, I probably thought it was, I probably thought the comment was funny. Oh my God. <laughs> like, it oh, really yeah, does. He put the jacket on. What the fuck? I mean, yeah, yeah it's like, I thought you just wanted me to be warm. Now I'm in the mud. This sucks. Yeah, like I, 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 I thought you cared about my, my well-being and, and my my warmth, but really, you just care about us looking the same. Yeah, yeah you, I, you just wanted me to comply in, in whatever fashion you prescribe. Okay, I get it. I'm learning. I'm learning. Um, <laughs> but then, and then later, um, my old man always got a charge out of this story I would tell him about uh, being tasked with guarding those those shipping containers out there mm-hmm. um, because I asked, I was like, well, what do I, what do I do if someone wants to pilfer this? How am I to stop them? I'm unarmed. I have no weapon or anything. I'm just, you know, Joe. Not so some asshole whistle. gives me a stick. There you go. <laughs> and I remember being out there with my stick and my old man always thought that was just hilarious. I was a U.S. Army infantryman guarding something over in Germany uh, by using a stick. Yeah. <clears throat> that is ridiculous. I remember that too. I do. Actually, I completely forgot about those connexes even been out there until you mentioned it. Yeah. As soon as you said it, I was like, oh my God, I do remember that. Yeah. And I do remember you out there with a stick. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, you know what's coming and we all kind of know what's coming. We get back from Kosovo. Uh, the, the gears of war more or less is starting to grind. Yep. Um, what was going through your head, knowing full well that at some point in the near future you're going to be knee deep in uh, whatever combat they can put us in? Well, well, once you guys all came back, and then uh, I got to be no longer just part of the, the Bravo Company Rear D, and I was put into the second platoon. Right off the bat, I was put into um, the Mounted Squad. I was. Sergeant Goff's driver driving the Bravo 28 Bradley. The coolest um, track on the planet. Hell yeah. Sweet baby <laughs> bitch. That's what I named it. <laughs> and, uh, and at the time then, I had as a gunner, uh, Sergeant Smith. And I, um, I love the guy. I love all the guys that we served with, mm-hmm. by and large. Um, mm. But that dude was... Uh, that dude was intense, and I and he I remember he came from the 82nd Airborne, and I always thought it was kind of maybe somebody's joke to put him in a Bradley, like punish him, right? Um, and or maybe maybe I was wrong, and maybe he was just naturally mean all the time. Um, but I can't, a, came to find out later he you know wasn't. That's a very um, awkward place to put somebody from the 82nd rush straight away. Yeah, yeah. And so I was the driver, and then I had. E5 Sergeant Smith is my team leader. And then we had then E5 Sergeant Goff is the squad leader. And, um, and then I got to go home on leave over Christmas because my grandmother had passed away. Okay. And so just like everybody had come back from Kosovo, you all want to leave. And I just, I went home on, on leave too. And then came back just like everybody else did. And I remember in January, uh, we, we were, well aware that we were supposed to go into Turkey. Mm-hmm. We, in January of 2003, we were all well aware that there was going to be an invasion of Iraq. We were getting ready to go invade Iraq, and we were guessing we were going to go through 
Turkey and come from the north, and that's why we shipped off. We wound up sending vehicles away and household items and all that. Um, but what I remember, I was I remember feeling very, very ill prepared, and to be honest, very scared. Not so much at the prospect of being shot or blown up, but I was terrified that we would be subjected to chemical uh, or biological agents mm-hmm. be- because I remember the constant training we would do with our mop here, our mission oriented protective posture. Thank you. you. Thank you for filling that in for our listeners who don't know. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise they'll be thinking like, why are they training with mops? Who, mops? What oh, is so terrifying again, about mops? But then again, you know, you, you guarding a Connex with a stick, it would make sense that we're going to train with mops too. So it lines, yeah, right. <laughs> it, lines up. it lines up. And we use mops every day in that barracks going through those common areas too. So it's not the reason. Yep. So, uh, but chemical, I can recall the chemical weapon oh, part of it was the thing that had you uh, kind of hanged up a little bit. Yeah. Cause I can recall being outside the barracks um, and just constantly going through putting on that gear and knowing that you've got to get your boots on and your trousers and your jacket and you got to get your gloves on and your mask and you've got to have all the gear on and in the right way. And I can recall NCOs being like, oh, this one piece here, this button's not buttoned, you're dead. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, trying to impart the serious nature of this and that's terrifying. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and that, if we, we really did train that a lot, right? We were, uh, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. you just be hanging out, having a cigarette, and somebody come up behind you, banging metal or screaming "gas, gas, gas." Yeah. Oh, that's awful. And you got to throw on the. Uh, I mean, you you get proficient at it like uh, quickly. You know, mm-hmm. the more mm-hmm. practice you get, I'm assuming that's the idea. And yeah, it worked. But man, uh, yeah, that that kind of fuck with you because we go oh, to yeah, a place yeah. where, you know, it's it's an actual serious threat. It's you know, Saddam used that on uh, those folks back then. Hmm. Yeah, and then we went back to that uh, Camp Robertson area, the area Mike, and then you know, we went through the you know, gas chamber back there. I remember you, <laughs> you guys talking about the gut truck rolling up. Johnson yeah. mentioned that gut truck. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Savior. Finest that gut truck, around. by the way, while we're on the, the gut truck, the gut truck was my favorite part of EIB training. <laughs> uh, That's not even an event. <laughs> no. no, when we were doing the, the expert infantry badge training, uh, I like I like the pork sandwiches and they were the, bomb, the armpit right? hair. Yeah, they were delicious. No, oh, they were great, wonderful. I loved them. Oh my god, that was my you, thing when when we saw that truck come around and the fucking pork sandwiches, yeah. man. Oh, mm. yeah. When it's cold outside and you've been shooting the, on the saw all day or whatever you got, <laughs> and uh, man, that and uh, orange fan. Oh boy. Oh yeah, and like you said, the Fanta was so good. Yeah, nice and spicy Fanta or whatever the hell. Yeah, extra acidity. Okay, uh, kick ass training. Yeah, man, kick ass training. Um, but but we're going at some point. You transition from a gunner. I mean, I'm sorry, a driver to gunner. Correct. I did. I did. Um, I. Well, all through 2003. 2003 was a banner year. It was a great year. I mean, we you guys have talked ad nauseum about you know training hard and then playing hard yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, but it really was uh, a great year overall i i went to remember we went to grafenvir uh three times and i went 
to two gunneries as a driver. Mm-hmm. Um, both, I was a driver the first time in Bravo 2.8 with Smith as the gunner and Goff as the, the Bradley commander. Mm-hmm. And then the second time we went, it was that gunnery that happened just before the, uh, the Hohenfels uh, rotation. And mm-hmm. I was the driver of Bravo 2.8 still, but Curtis now is the gunner. Mm-hmm. And Goff still the, the Bradley commander. Um, and then that, that arrangement stuck through Hohenfels. And then it was after... After I got my EIB, and I didn't want to, I was reluctant to train up for that EIB um, because I'm not sure if you guys ever had this thought. I always saw guys with an EIB and thought, hey, that guy knows some shit. Like, I can go and ask him questions. Yeah. I never wanted to be that guy. Like, I I don't want, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to have something on my shirt that says I know everything. I want to have plausible deniability. I want to be able to say, I don't know. I'm dumb. (laughs) Leave me alone. It makes sense, man. Once you uh, have that EIB on your shirt, uh, you're expe- not expected, but yeah, you're expected. Like, oh, hey, you're totally you're expected. Yeah. Fucking, fucking yeah. God knows, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, what's, what's funny. So um, they're taking names right now for the, uh, the best warrior competition for the United States Army Reserves Command. And one of the requested requirements, so like a partial requirement, is they want people who have their EIB or expert soldier badge or uh, expert field medic badge um, as graders for this event, which, you know, makes sense, right? Because it's all EIB tasks. And uh, <clears throat> so it, it kind of plays into what you're saying. It's like, I mean, if you have one of those badges, I don't know if you know this now, but like they have the, uh, the ESB now, the expert soldier badge. Hell yeah. Yeah, I've seen it. Badges yeah. for everyone. Well, so here's the, here's here's my take on it, and I kind of I kind of guess by your by your by your tone just then that you're not a big fan of it, but um, I, I I like the idea um, behind the cab, the combat action badge, mm-hmm. and the expert soldier badge because so anybody can can train and test for the EIB, but only infantry and then 18 series special forces guys can wear it, right? But anybody can train it, and it's all skill level one stuff, right? It's all your your basic things that everybody should know. And if there's anything that the global war on terror taught us is that anybody can be in combat, anybody can be in a position to you know utilize these these skills. Word. And so I think I think them coming out with the ESB is actually um, is a great thing, and I think it's a, a late. I think it should have been, it should have should have been a thing years ago. Um, and we used to we used to complain when they came out with the combat action badge. Like, if you wanted a combat badge, you should have joined the infantry or been a medic. But all these years later, you think about it, like, man, that was like really like uh, kind of closed mind, closed mind thinking right there. Because you know, women couldn't get it, and women are in the middle of fights like a motherfucker. I mean, back then yeah. when it was <clears throat> when it was spicy. Right. No, I mean, I've 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 worked with military police um, who saw just as much combat, um, artillerymen, combat engineers, uh, who, who all saw just as much combat, if not more, in some cases. Um, yeah. So it is it is it is a neat thing to be able to give them to show that hey, I I, I have done a thing or two. Um, so it's it's kind of cool. I get it, you know. But I do. I am upset at the criteria to receive the cab, the combat action badge. You, your element only needs to be engaged. Whereas to get the CIB, the common infantry badge, you have to be actively engaged with the enemy, meaning they're firing at you and you're returning fire. You are engaging. Doing your so, job. 
Right. The cab is just like to the fullest. you can be you can be in a hundred vehicle convoy and the first vehicle takes a pop shot and everybody in the convoy qualifies for the cab. Yay. All yeah. right. You did it. <laughs> hey, you got it. But um but yeah. No, you, but but you're absolutely right though. If you have something like the EIB um or the the expert field medic badge, um you, somebody looks at you and says, This guy has all the answers to all the things because he is an expert at being this. Yeah. Yeah, that's the line I got from Baggett uh, late in 2003 when Sergeant Baggett came to be the platoon sergeant and take over for Sergeant Sweeney. Um, I was in the maintenance bay doing something with one of the Bradleys, and I was in the turret, and fucking Baggett just shows up out of the, and he's like, you know, show me how to work all this stuff. <laughs> and I, I tried giving him one of these like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm only new to this position. I haven't been, I've never been to a gunnery. And he's like, listen, dirt, got you at me for specials with an EIB on your chest. You know, <laughs> you earn that. And that, that could be taken away. I'm speaking about the ranks. Like, okay, all right, let's, I'll train you. Sure. I'm glad Griffin got to do the bulk of that. Cause I, I was, put, I didn't like being put on the spot there. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Yeah, and just for people listening, like the the Bradley, anything on the Bradley, like the driving it, the gunning it, the controlling it, the dropping it, the whole nine, right? None of that is included in the expert infantry badge training. <laughs> like none of it. Like not no. a not not not. Yeah, it's a very unique position. What did you feel about going from uh, from from driver to gunner? Uh, that was that was cool. Um, I so I had gotten my EIB at, and I was a. I got my expert infantryman badge in October and I was still a PFC and right after, and I was true blue. Uh, this is what was, I think this is cool. And Sergeant, we got a, I think this is cool for Sergeant Goff because Sergeant Goff was, uh, uh, Bravo two eight, uh, Bradley commander. And then his gunner was Curtis. And then I was his driver and Curtis and I both went to get our EIBs and both Curtis and I earned our badges and we did so true blue. And I thought that reflected well upon Sergeant Goff. I thought that was pretty neat. Yeah, for sure. We don't and we then, don't uh, get it, give Sergeant Goff enough credit for just his knowledge for things because oh, yeah, man, he, was, he was he was like a great fun person to be around and cool person and you know aura was always on point. But he was extremely knowledgeable or is extremely knowledgeable about his uh, his job. So you know, uh, one interesting thing about Sergeant Goff um, when I was in basic training. You know, you, you know, you know, when we go to the, uh, the AT4 range and, uh, yeah. I don't know if they did it with, with, with you Walker, but um, they might've done it with you, Tyree, when we were, yeah. when you, 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 separate from there and you go off and you do the Bradley training, if there's any, if there's any training for that at all. Um, so back in the day before they did away with the 11 Mike MOS, which was the mechanized MOS that <clears throat> the mechanized course was like two weeks and then it was condensed to a week and then it was condensed. So like, here's the Bradley sit inside of it. <laughs> yeah. Here's how it drives. Okay. Go back to yeah. the T four range. <clears throat> well, turns out that Sergeant Goff was one of the, uh, range cadre for the AT four range. That was his duty station at Fort Benning. And he was one of the range cadre for the AT four range. So he was there when I went through that, which was pretty okay. neat. funny. Yeah. You bump into before all this other stuff happens. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, of course I didn't. I didn't recognize him or remember him, but he was like, "Oh yeah, I was definitely there." Like we were there for every single class that ever came through. So if you were there, I was there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm like, no shit. I, I I I knew you look familiar, but no, not really. Yeah, the mustache stood out. Yeah. So uh, 
Uh, you're you're a you're a gunner now. Yay! Uh, Yay! Uh, <clears throat> what? And uh, and as I got to be a gunner right away, uh, that's <clears throat> pardon me. Uh, that's when I got to meet Messer and have Messer come on to be uh, the driver for the Bravo Two Five track. Christopher Good Messer. Messer, man. Yep. And uh, do you guys remember when we had that Spader ball? Hmm. Um. I, that was a fun time, and I realized uh, that I could trust Messer wholly when uh, I got drunk at the Spader Ball, naturally. <laughs> and as, as one does. As, as one does. Should. And there was, uh, like, I was going to the table. I wanted to get some, take some food back to the barracks, so I was stuffing bread underneath my <laughs> Class A jacket to take back. <laughs> and and, um, and I was... By the time I was just too drunk to be there anymore, I went outside and I was like, ah, Randall, Randall, you know, Colonel Randall Dragon. I was out there screaming, Randall. And I threw this glass at the building and then someone snatched up Messer and said, hey, take him back to the barracks and take care of him. And Messer did. And from then on, we had a really nice relationship. Man, and that's, you know, he was one of those guys that you could trust in any and all situations, no matter what. I mean, so long as you were legal, right? As long as you were ethical, right? You weren't doing yeah. anything super, super crazy. Yeah. Like Messer was guaranteed to have your back 1,000%. He did. He did. I love that, man. Yeah. yeah. There was never any, uh, no no questioning. St- I mean, there was questioning. Don't get me wrong. Because he was fucking. <laughs> <laughs> they were, there was going to be some questions. But, um, yeah, you, you can definitely count on them for anything. Yeah, and another plus or positive about you two is like I can't remember a time where I didn't see you guys around each other one way or another when we weren't True. doing army work stuff. Oh, True. yeah, from we were just hip to hip, just all the time hanging out with each other. Um, and I wish he were still here so we could hang out some more. Man, you are not fucking lying, yeah. dude. And Tyrese mentioned this before, but like we were we were together. He was here in Arkansas. Um, when we found, when we heard the news and it was one of those like uh, strand had hit me up on, I think it was Facebook at the time. And dude, it was just, it was one of those like, what? No, no possible way. Like clearly they have a mistake. Like not, mm-hmm. not Christopher Messer. Like, I mean, anybody else on the, on the planet, but not Christopher Messer. Cause he's, he was just that guy, right? Like everybody loved Messer. Like nobody, nobody had any issues with him. Fucking nicest fucking dude on the planet, yeah. and 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 it just was like absolutely not. It didn't make you know? any fucking sense. It, it was uh, and to, to say it, it doesn't make any sense now. I remember him saying exactly how he passed was going to happen. I remember him saying mm-hmm. exactly exactly that. And yeah, man. God damn it! It 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 made me so sad because I remember the the my last memory was. In Germany was with me, him, and, and Walker together. Oh yeah, that's right. Driving, driving you out of there. Yeah, <laughs> that was a beautiful memory, and I'm I'm glad I got to have that with with you guys. But mm. at the same time, it's it's still like fuck, man. Like, uh, fuck. It's one of those things. Yeah, but so like, and I, I don't say on this like on this particular subject. So like, like we. Being, you know, being that we were military and we deployed to combat and we were infantry, like we understand the role, 
right? We understand that when we're there, it's absolutely not just a possibility, but highly likely that today's our last day, right? We understand that. We understand that as we transition out of the military and those that are still in and they continue to deploy and, and do all that stuff, the same rule applies to them. We understand that. But does it but, have to? Right. And so then when something like that does happen, it's just like a real kick in the fucking nuts, man. And it's just something like, like it's, it's hard to explain to people who, who don't understand it from that perspective. Um, and not that they need to understand it, not that anybody needs to understand it from that perspective. Do you know what I mean? I would rather that perspective of combat and like that, that, that level of acceptance of your, your own mortality uh, remain so with with the military because we're we're designed for it, we trained for it, we're like we enlisted for it, um, and I would rather the the general population not necessarily understand that concept as much as as much as like when I first came home, um, you know I tried to make people understand you know, or, you know if you the whole I, I saw I saw a bumper sticker once it was a Vietnam veteran bumper sticker that said if you didn't go you wouldn't know and it absolutely makes sense but like you still try to like explain it to people so that maybe they understand um, and knowing that they never will. So it's your, your, your efforts are, you know, in vain for sure. But um, I, I never tried to explain it to folks because I know I, that it was nothing I could do mm-hmm. to nothing. I could put into words to make them understand Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. how, and I used to get in arguments with people about this shit. Like that fucking guy's my brother. Mm-hmm. Oh, you guys are blood related. No, that's my fucking brother, though. You don't understand that. Like, I would do anything for him. Hopefully, I'm sure he would do anything for me. Mm-hmm. We're fucking brothers. Yeah. And to people not understand that, I'm like, I don't even want to fucking try to explain it to you because it's a, it's a waste of time. Because if you want to sit here and, like, argue with me about, not argue, but, like, not understand what I'm trying to tell you, then right. it's, a, it's a waste. It's a lost cause. Yeah. Yeah, we had we had shared hardships, and we and as such, we could turn to each other to explain something and know that because we shared that same frame of reference, it would be understood. And that's that's something um, that just isn't out in in the general populace that way. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and it's like you don't even have to say anything. I can look at them until. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like a like a fucking brother or sister or you know blood relative same kind of thing somebody that you love you the same kind of feeling that you get for these people oh, yeah. we talk yeah. shit about each other you know <laughs> yeah, yeah all the time like fucking this guy's an idiot you know he's a dickhead all this kind of <laughs> shit like this like i yeah. i wouldn't fucking drink uh after him because he probably has herpes or something nuts but <laughs> don't, i'm saying like hey everything's yeah. everything's possible but at the same time like if you talk about him we're going to have problems. Yeah. Like I can talk shit about sure. you, but if somebody else talks shit about you, um, we got, we got issues. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing, man. Like, uh, like I, I, you know, my, I have real life, like blood brothers and, um, you know, like my siblings and it's, you know, it, I, I, I can talk shit to my siblings, but like as soon as somebody else talks shit to my siblings, I'm going to punch you in the face. It's the same with you guys. You know what I mean? It's, it's just yeah. how that is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for sure. It's a, with that herpes thing, but <laughs> hey, man, I had um, to paint the picture. I had to make yeah, sure. Yeah, no, I get it. Like, yeah, yeah I get sometimes it. Sometimes yeah. you should not drink off of the same same drink as your brother. <laughs> yeah, right. Because yeah. I mean, who who knows you better, right? Exactly. Like, oh, listen, I know exactly who he was with the other night, and uh, <laughs> not gonna happen. 
Yeah. No, that's cool. I'll get my own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so that. Well, hey, <clears throat> before we get too far into something else, I'm remembering. Uh, um, I want to. Can I say something about Curtis? Yeah. Oh yeah. Because uh, we had a platoon full of guys, and some guys don't get mentioned or enough, or they haven't been. Uh, but Curtis was a Curtis was a cool dude, and when Curtis came in, he was he came to Torpedo in um, in 2003, but in like mm-hmm. the spring. And that sounds yeah. about right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he, he, he and he showed up as an E4 because yep. he had college credits, and so he showed up as a you know a new Joe, but an E4. Mm-hmm. And then they put him in the they put him in the Bradley as my as my gunner, and I was the experienced driver. So I remember we went. Um, I had a good time working with Curtis and, uh, he was really easy to work with. Um, but the one story that, that clued me in that I could trust Curtis in the same sort of way that I could trust Messer was we'd been out drinking downtown late some weekend night, Friday night, like likely. And, uh, and the next morning in the barracks, just feeling awful and hung over walking. I was walking through the hallway and Curtis comes up. And he hands me some euros, like like fifty euros or hundred. I can't remember, but he hands me this money, and I'm just like, "What? Why are you giving me this money? What is this for?" And he's like, "Man, don't don't you remember last night? Don't you recall?" No, man, you got it. What's this for? And he's like, "You loaned me this money last night," <laughs> and I say, "I pay you back." It's like, "Well, shit, I don't remember that." And I remember King was there, and he's like. Oh man, you could add a three hundred euro or whatever. But Curtis paid me back every dime that I lent him when I was on blackout drive. That's awesome. That's a good man. That's that the honor. Hell yeah. Do you do you remember um I'm assuming you listened to what was it, the last one of the two that like that Batyree and I where we talked about that night um in our barracks room. <laughs> yeah. Where we destroyed everything and just yeah. golf showed up the next day and the room was just trashed. Yeah. Um, I forgot all about that until you really? brought that to my uh, remembrance. Yeah, yeah. No, I, uh, I, I think about that time pretty often. Because if I'm not mistaken, it was it was me, you, and Kurt. Wasn't there? Was there? Was there one other person? Uh, it was the three of us in that room. I know. At one time, there were there were four people crammed in there. Yeah. Well, I know. I know. So, like, you know, Griff moved out, and then yep. I, I think you or Kurt moved in. Paget was already living there. Um, uh, then yeah. I think maybe Paget was there with, uh, there might've been the four of us there. Yeah. But I think that night, I don't know that he was there, but I do remember me, you and Kurt there. And I do remember when Sarngoff came in that next morning and it, yeah, it looked like, I don't know, a fucking bomb had gone up in there and he just <laughs> shit destroyed. <laughs> Wasn't he actually pissed off? Uh, I don't remember him. You know, he didn't. He you know he never yelled, right? But, yeah, you, know, his, you could make him upset. Yeah, there you go. His level of pissed off. Yeah, yeah he wasn't too happy about it. Yeah, it was no, disappointment. But, uh, it was like disappointing. It, yeah, that's more more term for it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think I think him saying him saying like you know um, as sternly as 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 Sergeant Goff can be, clean this shit up. Yeah, you know, like that. That's like the extent of his. That's the max. Oh, anger yeah. out of him. Yeah. And yeah, and he was like the opposite of Sergeant Smith, who was my first gunner. Uh, Sergeant Smith, you remember? Did, he had this scar on his right cheek. Do you guys remember that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I asked him one time. I was like, "Hey, Sergeant Smith, um, that scar on your cheek is that from a coat hanger?" <laughs> my God! 
and it took him a little bit <laughs> no. to get what I was inferring. And it was so much fun to sit and watch that realization dawn on his face. But then he was furious, and uh, he had me doing <laughs> stupid human tricks like iron mics and all manner of silly things forever. But then he was furious. <laughs> but yeah, it was fun to draw out his anger that way. Oh my gosh. You know, and it's really funny, because he, he, he was my squad leader for uh, the bulk of our deployment, and Sergeant Smith is like a really nice guy. You yeah. know what I mean? Like a genuinely nice guy, very knowledgeable, um, but he could also turn it on when he needed to. And I watched him do that one day. We were doing a traffic control point, and I was a 240 gunner at the time, laid off on the side of the road, pointing out in the open desert, looking at, you know, fuck all. And, um, <clears throat> and I just hear Sergeant Smith yelling at a driver to stop. And I look back, you know, because there's nothing in front of me to look at. So I look mm-hmm. back and I'm going to watch the show and he's got his M4, you know, shouldered um, with one hand and his, his non-firing hand, he's, he's pointing at him, get the fuck back. And um, this car, this, he just keeps inching up on him, you know, just keeps inching up on him and inching up on him. And finally, instead of shooting, because, you know, they didn't warrant that, he walks over there, um, slings his M4 with his right hand, left hand opens the door reaches in with his, his, his right hand, grabs the guy by the collar of his man dress, rips him to the ground, right? Like straight out of the vehicle to the ground and then bitch slaps him <laughs> like backhands him. Yeah. And the guy's like, you know, who knows what he's saying? You know, we don't, we don't speak the same language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You would think a weapon being pointed at him would be uh, enough to cross the language barrier, but it wasn't. But uh, this guy was the guy was my size, you know, and Sergeant Smith was was a smaller, a smaller guy. The guy was I'm six two, you know, at the time I was like two oh five and he just rips his stuff. I mean, I was just like, <gasps> never piss off Sergeant Smith. <laughs> yeah, I from from my turret, I and when we were deployed there and I, I could watch him sometimes uh, and when he was you didn't want to cross him when he was in that sort of mode like, oh, uh, no. He had that look in his face, man. His eyes. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. did you ever hear the story about him eating glass at the bar? What? No. Yeah, man. So his party trick, I guess back in the 82nd, was uh, uh, he would eat glass. Not even joking. <laughs> eat, eat glass. I'm not I'm not even. Eat eat glass, bro. Like uh, like if the glass is broken, he would go ahead and like take a, take a bite out of it and just swallow it all, man. The whole shit. That was his like uh his party trick. That he was a tough motherfucker, dude, and I never uh like uh I, I would always see him joke and laugh and I'm like just like you guys are saying, like at the at the drop of a dime, man. It, it, when it's go time, it's go time and he didn't fuck around. And I'll I'll tell you though, I appreciate having him as my very first uh, team leader in that gunner position. He squared me away when it came to all those inspections we had and every time you'd have to get ready for some, you know, movement, we'd have packing lists if you're going to go on a march. And he was, I appreciated um, the instruction and the training that he was able to give me uh, as a team leader. Excellent, excellent person to be around and learn from. Yeah. Okay. So um, before we get too deep into that, um, who did you roll? Well, it, when you landed in, uh, when we landed in, 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 was it Kuwait? 
Mm-hmm. What what was going through your mind, man? Like, hey, it's finally a uh, go time, more or less, for this whole thing. I mean, you know, in a, in a, in a little bit, we'll be getting into that. But you know, you know, here we are. We're in the desert. We're we're in the Middle East, in the middle of this, and it's about to start. Like, what was going through your head? Well, I've got a pretty good remembrance of that. Um, did you guys, either of you, keep a diary or a journal or a log of your I, there? I, God, I, I started I to. I wish I did. I started to, but then um, when when the Crider event happened, I stopped. Yeah. Um, my parents, my family, they gave to me Christmas of 2003 a great gift. I got this little little journal, little leather-bound journal, and I took it with me. And starting February 13th, uh, Friday the 13th, um, I started making journal entries in my notebook and, and I carried through pretty regularly through the Brassfield Mora time. And then it started tapering off once we moved out to Razor, a patrol based Razor later on. And then just before we started Operation Baton Rouge on October 1st of that year, um, that's when my last entry was. And then the op tempo shifted and there wasn't time for journaling anymore. That was left by the wayside. Yeah. But I can remember that as we, set out uh, when we got to Kuwait um, and we got to Camp New York I was excited man uh, I was I was pumped because two years prior I had joined the army knowing that I would go well expecting very well that I would go fight somewhere mm-hmm. I thought it might be Afghanistan because that's where the conflict was at the time Makes much and sense. uh and then a year after I joined the army, when we were at, at Graf, spring of 2003, when the Iraq war was kicking off that kinetic phase and that first invasion, I remember being at some, at Grafenbeer, some shop at the food court and watching mm-hmm. news of that starting. And I was like, <clears throat> well, we're that. And plus we had that earlier training in January and the shipment and we we'd we're expecting to go there. So I was in February of 2004 when we got to Kuwait, I was very excited to be there. I was motivated. Uh, I remember writing it. I was excited. I wanted to help the guys around me. I wanted to disseminate information that I got. I wanted to be helpful and everything for my few first few entries. It's, it's really, it's positive. It's describing the environment and what we were doing and, and, uh, I was, I was really, I was pumped up. I was, I was excited and that's stuck with me for a while. Man. I remember being at that, um, food court. I was in line to get Anthony's pizza and they were talking about, uh, the push into Iraq and thinking like, man, like that's supposed to be us coming from the other yeah. direction. Right. Yeah. It's kind of a, it's kind of a crazy thought, like watching it on TV, like knowing that we were supposed to be a part of that. Oh, it's, it's definitely, it is an interesting um, almost kind of a surreal thing, like fuck, man, and like knowing that, like, well, we're we're about to be there anyway. So yeah, it's yeah, it's like the term left out of the surreal. party, man. Like mm-hmm. uh, we're going to get there eventually, but we're like running really late, okay? <laughs> right? Yeah, like you know, I have this reoccurring dream that I'm always late to something, and I think that could, might have something to do with it. Oh yeah, yeah, I think so. Like yeah, it could be honestly, I think uh, when that whole war was kicking off, we were sitting around twiddling our thumbs. 
even though we, you know, we were ready to go, but we, we it didn't happen. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you, I I appreciated that extra year though. Um, oh yeah, you know, from from watching that war start in that food court to you know, being in Kuwait, I got a lot of good training, and that helped me feel confident about what we were doing and what I was doing more specifically. Definitely. Yeah. Oh yeah, I was not sure. ready to go January of '03. I I would not. Yeah, I was not ready to go into Turkey in in January. God, it no. definitely, I think, would have been a different war for sure for us if if, if uh, we had gone in '03. Because um, I mean, I think you, you know, like we we did spend a ton of time in the field training, and as we've mentioned before, 2003 was just a big uh, chance for you know everybody to bond and kind of get together and and get on the same page and get on the same same wavelength or whatever you want to call it, um, and become a, a tighter group. Yeah. Yeah. And we're technically man. proficient too. I needed, I needed that technical training, whether it was mm. as a driver or a gunner or, you know, just a rifleman. I needed, I, and I benefited from that additional uh, year's worth of training. Before you became a gunner, right? So we knew we were going to Iraq for OIF2, right? We knew that, you know, once the whole turkey thing was called off, you were still a driver at the time, right? <clears throat> yeah. What did you, did you do anything to like mentally prepare for that role? Because as a driver of a Bradley, your your job is to drive the Bradley. So I mean, like, you, you don't necessarily have your weapon in hand; you are driving the weapon. Um, so, was there anything that you did, um, or or whatever, to kind of like, kind of mentally prepare that? Do you know what I mean? Do you know what I'm asking? Yeah. Oh, um, I took pride in what I did. I took pride as a driver, and I went out and tried to learn as much as I could about the job and. Uh, and that's that's what I was trying to do to prepare. You know, I I wanted to be as good a driver as I could be. And as you guys might recall, we had some Bradley drivers who were awful. They were put there because maybe nobody wanted them in other positions. But mm-hmm. some of those guys were were shitbags. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of these vindictive, petty little drivers. When you get your vehicle out into the field, and you guys as dismounts would uh, uh, would strap your rucksacks to the sides of the Bradleys. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the asshole drivers made it a point to get close enough to trees to knock off the rucksack from the oh, vehicle. That's, that's annoying. Wait, guys from our platoon? Mm-hmm. Guys like Hall and Sanders. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, that was... It, that was. <laughs> and, yeah, Sanders, I drove to Army Jail up in Mannheim. I don't know if you guys ever were tasked with that job, but I drove a bunch of dudes up to Army Jail in Mannheim, that correctional barracks. I don't and, remember Sanders. I remember Sanders, man. Me and him were pretty cool. We were cool with each other. He was, uh, he made me laugh. It sucked yeah, I, that, I, you know, it, everything worked out the way it did for him. But yeah, I mean, you, you're on your own path. Yeah. And so that's what I did was just, I didn't want to be the guy pissing off the dismounts in the back. I didn't want to have that separation between mounted and dismounted so much. I was proud to be a dismounted or a mounted crew and driving the Bradley, but the guys in the back were my guys. It's my job to get them from point A to point B safely. Right. With all their gear. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, so I mean, and you got to think like, so, you know, like what driving in Grafenvier or or Hohenfels or or wherever, and then knowing that we're going to go to combat where actual IEDs exist and, and pressure plates and this and that and RPG sevens and whatever else, like as a, as a, as a driver, like how, how do you kind of 
like mentally prepare you. I mean, I know like your goal is like, listen, I'm going to drive the fuck out of this thing uh, the best way I can to ensure that, you know, we get to where we're going safely, blah, blah, blah. But like, is there, is there like, is there anything to that as far as like, like, so I always had this idea in my head that like, so we were out there shooting, right? We're running and gunning and doing all that stuff. But as a driver, you're not. And I just, I've always kind of wondered, um, I don't know if I've ever really ever asked anybody, but like, I've always kind of wondered, like, is there, is there something to that? Like, maybe like you, you feel like maybe you're going to be left out of the fight or maybe it feels less cool, so to speak. Yeah. 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 For sure. Even that. Yeah. Not even that man. I always figured every time I looked at the drivers and there, you guys are doing some wild shit, especially when we were deployed. Uh, I never thought of them being as left out. Because I'm like, this motherfucker needs to be on point because it's time to be on point. Like, mm-hmm. do you, I, I can't even see what wild shit's going on on the outside of this fucking Bradley, but he's driving and avoiding and doing all this kind of shit. I mean, he doesn't want to die. He's out here yeah. trying to save his ass and he saved my ass too. So it was always really, uh, I always thought about that. Like always. And I, I never really question or spoke to the drivers about that but i always just like respected the fuck out of them for that because yeah that is their their fucking sniper kill shot you know Mm -hmm. us getting Mm -hmm. us through this shit uh no without any any issues and then taking care of this fucking thing because this thing is always leaking something or broke down fucking (laughs) whatever the fuck on top of that now you got these ncls screaming at them and fucking yeah. They're just fucking drivers, you know, quote, air quote, just fucking drivers. But they yeah, just drivers. they deal with a lot of fucking bullshit that, you know, most people would never think about. I, you know, I was telling somebody the other day, actually, that like, uh, you know, you know, in a mechanized infantry platoon, for, or at least for us, our drivers were, tip, were typically the, the lower ranking people. And they were just astounded. Like, why would you? give such an important job to your lowest ranking, your newest people. And, and you know, and it's like, it, it, it's a solid question, right? Like, why would you do that? Like, why? Cause you're not just the driver, right? You, you are running this entire vehicle, you know, like, like remember when we, we were at the okay corral, we took shots from a couple dudes from across the way and we had sniper support from the minaret overwatching and telling us where they were going. And we went after them. And we all load up in the Bradleys and we're chasing this like small white truck across town. They end up going to Red Crescent and dropping off their buddy and then heading back over to where the initial engagement happened. Mm-hmm. And I just remember being in the back of this Bradley, like I know damn well we were fucking like Tokyo drifting around corners and shit, like before Tokyo <laughs> drift was even a thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, and that's, that's all up to the drivers, you know, um, doing an incredible job knowing the city, knowing when to turn, knowing how to turn, knowing at what speeds they can go. Yeah. Um, you know, the whole nine dude. And like the Bradley crews all being in sync with each other just to make that whole machine operate the way it did. I mean, it's just truly astounding. And it, and it really is kind of like a, huh, why would we put the lowest ranking person <laughs> in that position? It's such an important position. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. shit's fucking what? heavy duty, hardcore man. And like, that's all you got. Like the uh, the uh, I might get shot in the ass or blown the fuck up, but you know the uh, the death of the driver. Holy fuck! Yeah, I don't want no parts of that. And Mm-mm. I think that weighed heavy on a lot of the drivers' minds. Like, hey, the the ID death, fucking getting shot in half or something nuts. 
mm-hmm. is is um, so I'm not trying to get graphic or nothing, but uh, that's what bothered me about the thought about being a driver mm-hmm. was, and and I had no no way to fight back. I'm just here, you know, and I I think that's a mistake to believe that at any point in combat we um, have control over what happens next as a driver or as a dismount. Oh, you know yeah. What I mean? yeah. That, that yeah. was me being immature at the time and yeah. not understanding like, no <clears throat> man, that's not it. There's so much more to that. Yeah. yeah. Well, before we had actually deployed and before we were, you know, hardened combat veterans, things like, IEDs, pressure plates, landmines, small arms fire, being shot at, being you know, direct, you know, targeted by indirect fires. All of those things were abstractions. They were words, but we hadn't experienced them. Mm-hmm. So how how I got ready for that deployment was just to focus on my job. And I can recall we had uh, we were out at Hohenfels in the, that summer of '03, and uh, at night we do radio watches between the vehicles we'd rotate out and Lieutenant Gunther, uh, like a lot of platoon leaders, they'd be, he'd be up late and he'd be working on, you know, maps and things. And I can recall, uh, sitting with him and being tasked with, uh, working to draw up his map overlays. And I was, you know, writing, drawing in the phase lines and these other things. And, and so that was a really cool thing for, a, an E2, uh, E3 to be experiencing and seeing that, okay, you know, I, I, I know my sphere, my little spot in the vehicle, but it's nice to see the other parts of this apparatus that are around me and how they all sort of fit together. And that's comforting then when you can trust that the people around you are competent and mm-hmm. they know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know. We're going to keep this party going, and uh, now we're deployed. We're fully, fully in Iraq now, in in uh, Samara, Iraq. Oh, sure. Uh, who were you uh, bunk with? Um, right off the bat, my first uh, chew, or what, what were they, container housing units? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Connex housing uh, unit. <laughs> Connex housing unit, thanks. Uh, I was in there with Sergeant Ferris, and I was in there with two guys from the tank platoon, Sergeant Roja and another E5. Man, so you're in there with like uh, half of them you, you slightly know, and then there's Ferris. Who you know. Yeah, I got. You know. <laughs> you know. And I'll tell you that um, just talking about Ferris, I want to say something really nice about that guy. After Messer's passing, the first person who told me that Messer had died was my mother. She called me at work, and uh, and then I, I left work, and I went back to my apartment, and I got a call later that day from Michael Ferris, and he was telling me that uh, Messer had died. And he and I, we hadn't communicated in more than a year and a half or so, not since he left Germany, so... I thought it was it was commendable of him, and I appreciate that he reached out to me to let me know that uh, Messer had died. Have you have you heard from him since? No, that was the last time I talked to him. Yeah, I've uh, you know people have their feelings about this or that or whatever, but there's a there's a few there's a few folks from the platoon who are just MIA, right? Um, Ferris being one of them, 
Santiago. No idea what happened to him, where he is in the world. Um, you know. Is Bozil down in Haiti <laughs> shooting the bad people, Motofoco? Uh, oh, no, no, my God. No, no. Bo- Bozil Bo- is in a wild place, man. He... <laughs> He actually just came across the, uh, the, the, the the Facebook group message uh, not too long ago. Was that New Year's, I believe? Or something like that. Yeah, uh, I think I added him in. And I wish I hadn't because he's a dumbass. No. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's a wild guy. I remember talking to him when he first got to you and I was like, man, what, do you, what are your goals with joining the Army? You're like, where are you going with all this? He's like, I want to go back to Haiti and be the president. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, I, I, I'm not too sure where he is on that track, but I, I'm not sure he's. Uh, I'm pretty. I'm fairly certain he's he's not on track. <laughs> gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Um, but I mean, he, I guess he's doing. He's up in New York. Um, you know, living living life to the semi fullest. Yeah. Hopefully, stuff, hopefully, yeah. staying off of Facebook. Is Sometimes. my is my. Uh, advice to him anyway um so what uh what do you remember about your first time uh your first engagement oh well can we back up just a touch oh yeah sure (laughs) brown the the enthusiastic one sure well i mean what kind of engagement are you talking about engaging you know with some uh Verbally with some NCO or engaging someone with my <laughs> weapon systems because no. I made lots of different engagements. I mean, let's hear, let's, I, I, I want I, I kind of want to hear about this NCO one. I feel like there's a story there. <laughs> oh my god, uh, there's got to be a story. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, uh, did either of you travel with the Bradleys? We we all went from Kuwait up to Samara, mm-hmm. and at the time the Bradleys had those like wire cages on the side and everyone's gear was jammed into the side on the flank mm-hmm. of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. And then we needed the Bradley's all, we drove to Anaconda to LSA logistics support activity, Anaconda, whatever that mm-hmm. abbreviation is. Logistics and, uh, we support were, area. There you go. Thanks. Yeah. We were going to get the reactive armor and put that on our vehicle. So we had to go down overnight and did you, either of you guys come with us? Yes. Yes, I did. Yeah. Ah, Okay. Do you remember we had that uh, the tank platoon E7, that platoon sergeant with us? He was the senior ranking NCO there. What was his name? Trevor the Katiga? P. Katiga? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does that sound right? Yeah, yeah it sounds does. about right. You know, he was like a little Car- short guy. Cartagena. Yeah. Uh, cart- hard for me to care. I don't <laughs> – I just remember <laughs> he was a short little E7 with poor English. Yeah. Uh, and he was a tanker. And we were all, you know, I'm no tanker. I may be a baby tanker pogue to some, but I'm still a goddamn 11 Bravo infantryman, as are the guys around me. Yeah. So we were there, and it was late, and we were just sitting around back of the vehicles, and I don't know why, but that E7 decided to make Curtis start doing stupid human tricks. Do you remember having – he he made yeah. Curtis get down and start low crawling. Hey, how about you get down and low crawl, you know, some – and I remember being so incensed that this tanker pogue was making Curtis out there, you know, low crawling. And I thought, this this aggression will not stand, man. I, this I will not abide. So I got out there, too. I said, in my mind, I was like, yeah, well, let's, if this guy wants to see some infantrymen low crawl, I'm going to show him how it's fucking done. 
And I got out there with Curtis and started low crawling with him. And uh, do, you, do you guys remember any of that? Yeah, vaguely. Yeah. I do not. It sounds. I remember familiar, some though. other guys. Some other guys joined in, and then, and then everyone was allowed to stop doing human, stupid human tricks. But <clears throat> I don't. That was one of those. Uh, you know, you watch movies, right? Oh, Where, I like, remember. One one person is getting picked on by like the coach or something like yeah. that, and you know the coach is just drilling into this one guy. And then, like, you know, he's got – well, there's there's movie like, out in the rain getting smoked. was it, like, A Few Good Men or something like that. And, like, the whole platoon comes back and, like, joins them. And it's, like, one of those, like – everybody gives that like, like that look. You know what I'm saying? Like, hey, man, what's up? Oh, we're brothers now? Cool. Let's do these yeah. push-ups. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's one of those moments for sure. That heartwarming hallmark. We're not, we're not going <laughs> to give in to you, Tanker Pogue. Even That's though right. the, the tankers definitely helped out a ton. Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Mean? Absolutely. But, but it's I, that – at the end of the deployment, like, come on, we're still eleven, probably yeah. you're not. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's. I, Sergeant Duel one time told me that as as eleven Bravos, once you know everyone else in different MOSs, they might get other skills that translate into other civilian careers. But as a infantryman, you've just, you've really got your pride. That's what you've got. That's you've what you got, got. Pride in what you do, and uh, yep. so that always stuck with me. <sighs> yeah, that's huh. true. There ain't nothing more. Uh... More after that, I tell you what. Yeah, there's not really a ton that's marketable. I mean, you can talk about leadership all you want, but like, I remember I, I went to an interview at Walmart Corporate uh, several years ago, and in that interview, you know, she was asking questions about, you know, being able. Well, I think the question was something about like how to handle an adverse situation, and you know, being able to make split uh, split second decisions, right? Yeah, And I was trying to relate it to, you know, my experience as a team leader while in Iraq. And, um, and I was trying to get, I, I didn't know properly how to answer the question. I didn't really have any good coaching. Um, even though my brother-in-law worked for Walmart corporate and offered to coach me. And I said, no, I got this, um, <clears throat> big mistake. But, um, and I'm sitting there trying to answer the question and she's just like, I, I don't really understand what you're saying. And I was like, well, so when you're deployed to combat, you have to be able to decide in a split seconds, whether or not you're going to kill somebody or not. And she was just like, <laughs> and that's when I you dropped a hard K on her, huh? Yeah. You don't say the word kill, um, in a, in a corporate interview, uh, well, for you, a management job. Well, she asked, I mean, no, she did. you she killed did. that, didn't you? I sure did. I, I killed it to the point where like, I didn't even get a call back, man. They were just like, they just blocked me. <laughs> Walmart has blocked me. I'm not even allowed to go to the stores anymore. Yeah, blocked by Walmart. Goddamn. All right. So, um, <laughs> well, the first time I fired my uh, any of my weapon systems um, in anger or otherwise uh, on that deployment was um, that first IED. So, sometime between the 14th and the 20th of March was when that first IED um, disabled that Abrams tank, mm-hmm. and that was out. Um, I over near was that fiftieth and Lakers. Fiftieth ran north, south, and Lakers east, west. And I, I we were coming around that corner, moving on to Lakers, and that tank was behind me when that uh, IED or mine, whatever it was, whatever it was that disabled the tank, uh, broke its track. I think it yeah lost a road wheel. Yeah, line mine. Yeah, yeah. Um, blew, blew the track and uh, took out a, a road wheel. Yeah. Yeah, and there was enough. We were close enough to Bravo Two Five vehicle uh, in front of them, where uh, there was debris, asphalt, and whatnot that had been. I found it in the bustle rack on top of the Bradley uh, after the fact. Uh, but I tell you, when that uh, when that explosion went off, 
and this was at night. And I, mm-hmm. I, when we first started off, I was much more uncomfortable at night with those night missions than, than day missions. Mm-hmm. And this thing, uh, when that explosion went off, uh, my level of focus intensified <laughs> to a, a point that I just can't achieve anymore. Yeah. Like, I was, uh, I was very, oh, in the Bradley, the Bradley turret for anyone who's listening, who's not you guys, the inside of the Bradley turret, it's a very small enclosed space. The driver or sorry, the gunner is on the left and the Bradley commander's on the right. And there's a small space in between you. And there's not much room to move your torso back and forth. Most of the time, my head, my forehead was up against this little brow pad, this little piece of padding. And my right eye was looking out this half dollar sized piece of glass. That was my view of the world. And so our SO, our standard operating procedure at the time when we received, you know, when we're ambushed or if we were to receive a IED contact, we were just supposed to shoot. And I remember this was like, we were just, <laughs> we were told, you know, if you get, we're just told to shoot. And this was so contra. <laughs> or contrary to all the army training, you remember all the army training was, you know, you shoot at a target, you don't just mm-hmm. you know, on the range. You're not just putting rounds out there. Yeah. You don't um, just fire willy nilly. Yeah. So, you know, I don't, I had no target to shoot at. So Ferris just like, you know, brought the turret using he either directed me to bring the turret left or he made it go left on his own. And he just directed me to put this, uh, put some rounds from the, um, coaxial 7.62 millimeter machine gun into this house. And, and so I did, I put a good burst or two into that house that was on my left flank, like right there point blank in front of me. And then I brought my turret back to the right and was just facing down the road. And I remember just being very calm and watching my sector. Uh, and after you know, we had been there for a little while. That's when I got these, these trembles and tremors in my hands and my body was just dumping its, uh, adrenaline load. But that was the first time I fired my, the, the coaxial machine gun, uh, in an engagement. It was an interesting night because that was the first time, um, I had ever been shot at and it was by one of the headquarter platoons, uh, Humvees. <laughs> yeah. How did that sit with you when that was happening? Uh, you know, I was, I was, uh, at the time I was the RTO for Lieutenant Gunther and I was sitting, um, in the back seat behind the driver and an up armored Humvee and <clears throat> just seeing the tracers come at us. First squad was dismounted, uh, walking to our flanks, um, online, kind of like hands across Samara. And I just remember seeing the tracers coming in and I'm like, dang, that's the tracers. When did the bad guys get tracers? And it might have been Lieutenant Gunther that was like, <laughs> they don't have tracers. I've had those same stupid realizations too. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what the shit? Those are our tracers. And then, yeah, like, we, this doesn't make sense. How did, <laughs> yeah, like, what is going on here? Um, and two, two of the rounds did hit the truck. One hit um, above the windshield on the driver's side. And then one hit, um, what was it like the hood of the truck um, in line with the, uh, the, the person sitting, sitting shotgun. Um, so if all the armored stuff wasn't there, then that round potentially could have passed through into that person. Um, <clears throat> but I still ducked, you know, I'm in an up armored Humvee, you know, and I still ducked. Uh, 
you know, because this is the first time I'm getting shot at. Yeah, you know, sure. Like, you know, like, what, what do you know about, like, getting shot at? Definitely duck. But. Yeah, at the very least. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, list, I guess that, that's, the checklist that's a, of things, duck yeah, is, like, yeah. number one. That's a good habit to be in, right? Like, I can remember later on in the deployment, like, getting shot at with small arms and just being watching it. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. you know, like, they're, well, they're there was this, uh, again. I yeah. had this, I had this understanding that like for any initial engagement, if nobody was hit or if you weren't hit, you were likely going to be fine. Um, because when they first attacked, you know, we called an ambush or whatever, when they initiated contact with us, that was their best chance at striking. Right. Once yep. we were able to respond and they were on the back battle or on the defense, um, it was, it was, you know, more increasingly more difficult for them to be able to like land blows. And, you know, so in my mind, it was like, you know, the first in, in, initiating contact would happen. And I'm like, okay, wait a second. I'm not hit. Nobody else is hit. Okay. We're good to go. What's the point in ducking? You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. yeah oh, that's, no, um, I'm still hiding. I mean, not hiding, but you know, <laughs> cover my ass, man. Those strays. Look at Dave. Fuck. Yeah, you know, I, I'll tell you that that last month that we were there, the, that's when I was a little more concerned about, uh, you, know, mm. being, you know, not exposing myself unnecessarily and so on, as it was getting closer to us leaving. But uh, I never, I never had that. Um, I don't know why. I don't know if it's because I was, I was just too dumb to like realize that, like, hey, we're winding down, so let's like be a little easier about stuff, but I can, I don't know. I just, I never, I don't, I don't guess I ever had that point uh, in my head. Um, I probably should have, right. Cause <laughs> we were still engaged, right. That we spent the last week deployed back on Brassfield, you know, getting ready to, I think it was like five or six days. Um, but like we were, we were in engagements up until the, the, the convoy out. Yep. So, um, there's no time to rest. <clears throat> Yeah. So as far as that whole, that whole year, um, deployed, wait, did you, I, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't, I don't remember exactly. Did you say that you did want to talk about, um, Easter? Oh yeah. The the way I was, um, thinking to approach this was more or less in a chronological fashion, you know, mm-hmm. making exceptions for us sort of bouncing around, but, uh, I am all for talking about the Easter Sunday fight that we had. Okay, well, uh, from from your um, tiny view into the world, uh, let's talk about Easter. <clears throat> well, can I can I touch on Kreider first? Because yes, because I know Brown, you were right there when Kreider was shot, and I know Skillen was there having listened to that. And uh, <clears throat> I went. I watched Kreider get shot too. I. <clears throat> Excuse me. I was standing up outside the hatch in my vehicle, and I what I turned to look at just the moment when I could see in Kreider's face that he knew he was in the wrong spot, and then those rounds from that coaxial machine gun went into him, and I watched Kreider's Kevlar helmet, his K-pot, just pop off and go into the air. That, and then. And then my recollection of what happened there sort of stops for a bit. I remember the the Bradley gunner who was who pulled that trigger. That uh, mm-hmm. I remember watching him, you know, just crying after that breakdown. Yeah, 
Yeah. And, and I, and our mission for that day was scrubbed and I went back to the pad as everyone else did. And I had to fill out a sworn statement because I had witnessed Kreider being shot and I filled out my sworn statements. And then I went outside, uh, of the little chew and went over by the concrete uh, wall that we had there in the perimeter of our living pad. And I just cried. I cried and cried. And, uh, it was Sergeant Duell who came over and uh, helped me get composed. And I appreciate, I always appreciated him helping me out there. Uh, but I took from that engagement not just watching Kreider die, but uh, the seeing how that happened. Like, I didn't see the Bradley commander up outside that. The Bradley mm-hmm. that was responsible for that there. And so what I took away is that the gunner in a, in the Bradley fighting vehicle, the, the site you look through when you're looking through your site, even on a, it has two magnifications, a low magnification and a high magnification, even at low magnification, that's a, it's a four power zoom. And the high power is like 12 times magnification. So even, even when you're looking out through your sights in the vehicle at low magnification, you can't see anything that's very close into your vehicle. You've got lots of dead space immediately around mm. your vehicle. And it's incumbent upon the whole crew to communicate with each other and work as a team to make sure that we can accomplish the mission without undue loss. So, when we went in to that Easter Sunday fight, I had fresh in my mind the lessons that I learned from watching Kreider get killed uh, at that test fire pit. Um, <clears throat> now, on April 11th, uh, I don't do. You, uh, do you guys want to jump in? I don't want to just. Oh no, man! Talk too much, man. No, you're you're fine. You got man. it. I mean. If if you're fine, we're fine. Yeah, it's, it's good. All right. Oh, cool. I, I it's your show. I don't. No, no. I want to hear you guys no, talk no. too. This this episode is your show. Side note: I am so happy that you're able to give us dates because we're we're. I mean, me personally, I'm I'm just going off of. Oh, this happened on or around yeah. this time. Oh, sure. The fact that you're able to give us some dates. Uh, I mean, we can almost put times to them. Yeah, the Kreider Kreider died on the 21st of March. And um, do you remember when Absher was on, he mentioned shooting that car that had ran through our checkpoint and him being yep. worried about being the first guy to shoot somebody and he was yeah. worried about getting in trouble. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that was, that was just before Kreider got shot. That was the day before or the day before that. <clears throat> it was sometime uh, after that first, I, um, or mine with the tank. But I can, when, after Absher shot that fella or shot into that car that ran our checkpoint, um, Ferris got out of the vehicle to, and dismounted to check on the situation. And I was still up in the turret watching my sector. And, and I had to, I had to make a decision on my own to shoot warning shots at some vehicle coming our way. That was the first time I fired warning shots at anybody. And this was just before we watched Kreider get mm. killed, but I was still cognizant that, 
I know Ferris climbed out. I don't know where he is maneuvering around the turret. Mm-hmm. I can't see if he's in front of the coax. It would be stupid to be there, but I don't know. And so I had to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad everything worked out fine, but I remember thinking like, Jesus Christ, I hope, I hope in making this decision to fire this warning shot, I don't shoot somebody by mistake. And this was before Kreider. Even. I remember that night thinking, cause that was, we were doing a tactical traffic control point. Yeah. Meaning we were set up on this road, vehicles parked on the road, soldiers in the road with the lights off. <clears throat> And when we saw a car coming, we would flip the lights on or whatever it was and hope that they would stop. Surprise. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, Surprise. Was, it, was, it was the wildest thing. I don't know whose plan that was. I don't know if that was left over from the group that was there before us or what wild idea, who, what officer somewhere came up with this plan and said, this is what we're going to do. But it was just, to, to me, like looking back on it now, it's absolutely asinine. To like set up in the middle of the road at night. Cause I can imagine if I'm driving down the highway at night at speed and you know, it's pitch black cause it's the desert and suddenly a bunch of lights come on in front of me. I, I, I what am I going to do? I don't, I have no idea. Am I going to stop and turn around? Likely. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then, and then, you know, knowing what they know, right. That there's us soldiers in this country. Um, and the, the beginning of an invasion has just happened. If I turn around, are they going to light me up and just completely mm-hmm. destroy me and my car and you know everything else? Uh, do I proceed forward uh, with my four ways on? It's, it was just the whole the whole thing was just ridiculous. Yeah, it, it, um, was, uh, it could have been done differently, or, bad, or not, or at not all. even at all, or yeah, not, or not. All, yeah, I didn't like being yeah. in our position, and I, I, I wouldn't want to be in the position on the other side of my weapon. You know that. Yeah. It's just a bad, unfortunate spot for everybody. I love and the if fact I'm not that mistaken, we all said, if not at all, yeah. at the same time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and 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 if I'm not mistaken, like you said, like so that was a night mission. I think we wrapped up at like midnight, and then we were back out that next morning going to the test fire pit. And you said that was the morning the event with Kreider happened. Yeah, Kreider was killed on the 21st. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then I know so, I made an entry in my journal that on the 22nd, we we began a week of night missions. So I guess we might be been wrapping up. Well, I forget exactly how that works, but yeah, just ridiculous. But anyway, yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. So we, uh, so Easter Sunday happened. That was a fun time. <laughs> uh, Gil had mentioned too, like, uh, that there was, there's some holiday taking place, some Islamic, uh, religious observance. And, and that's why there were a number of extra people in the city of Samara. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's why we were just there to help the indigenous security forces not do their job or what have you. Well, um, and 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 not to to cut you off or anything, but like so, Samara itself. I don't know if we've ever mentioned this in previous episodes, but it is a a holy city, right? Um, that golden mosque. Um, uh, I can't remember the actual name of the golden Al mosque. Al yeah, that sounds the, yeah, and uh, I think like, it's one of the holiest sites in all of Shia Islam, smack dab in the middle of a mostly Sunni city. Yeah, well, it was in the in the well in the Sunni triangle, right? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, so that uh, uh, what was I going to say? Yeah, well, so you've got that. Like that really think about that. That would really complicate the shit out of everything for those folks, wouldn't it? 
Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, and, and and it complicated the shit out of things for us because like the Sunni and the Shia were were definitely battling each other. That was a whole part of like the Saddam regime and you know all, all of that nonsense. And then the Sunnis saying that their version of Islam is correct, and the Shia saying that their version of Islam is correct. And then there we are being like, uh, we're just here to um, not take your oil, wink, or whatever the reason was. <laughs> and and. You know what I mean, and so there we are with all the stuff going on, and Samara, like I said, like 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 we said, is a is a very holy town with a mosque, and Al Al Mawia, the um, the spiral minaret. So, you know, when, when there's a when there's a holiday for them going on, and there we are in the mix of things, and it just so happens to be you know one of our holidays as well. It just it was definitely a decent recipe for what was to come <clears throat> definitely definitely it was and uh um it was one of those days i guess yeah and i remember that day you know as as much as the days were normal we'd only been in that area doing things for a month just over a month so as much as anything was normal it easter sunday felt like a normal day. I remember we had gone out in sector and, uh, or we'd gone out there and, uh, we were setting up some, like a traffic control point or something. And it wasn't, it didn't seem like we were out there for too long before we started getting those radio messages that, uh, that Charlie company second of the one Oh eight, those national guard guys had been, uh, they'd made contact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for anyone who's listening out there now, there's a really great piece that's been written and it's available. Use your favorite internet search engine and just look for Task Force 126 Infantry, the Easter Sunday Battle of Samara, April 2004 by Matt M. Matthews. It's, I only found like two discrepancies in the thing that would need to be mentioned. Uh, and I noticed a lack of a mention of that RO we change. Uh, but this is the task force one, two, six infantry. The is, is something that's great to read. Uh, and I'd encourage anyone who's interested in, in, in understanding what we did to check this thing out because it's very detailed and it paints a really good picture of what happened. Was it uh, between the rivers? Uh, that's a, that's a different piece. Okay. Uh, or maybe that's the, the, the title of the collected works because this, piece that I had mentioned I think was part of a a larger collection of maybe four pieces that might have been called Between the Rivers yeah okay does that sound right yeah uh, I'm, I'm, yeah I'm looking at it now um, and it looks like it is yeah quite and a that few shrine things. is Al Asgari shrine oh, okay and, what were the two discrepancies oh there's one point where the author mentions um where this contact is taking place. And he, he makes a simple error in saying that this engagement starts at, he doesn't make a mistake in saying that the engagement with Charlie company started by the intersections of route heat and route 60th. Um, but he just says that that's on the Western side of the city and it's not, it's on the Eastern side. So it's a simple error that should have been caught in editing. But if the person editing doesn't understand the, the context that it's an easy thing to overlook. Right. Yeah. It wouldn't have made uh, any difference to that person, no matter what. Yeah. Oh God, no. And the other thing was, he mentions that the, you know, the, we were equipped with those M2A2 
ODS Bradleys. Bradleys designed for use in the Gulf War, and that's not true. Like the ODS, the Operation Desert Storm Bradley, was a variant uh, that was in use after the Desert Storm conflict that incorporated lessons learned from the from Desert Storm. It's a really minor thing that nobody else cares about, because but because I was for so long a Bradley crew member and yeah, a fan of the vehicle. Like I know, I know, you know, that mm-hmm. for what it's worth. All right. So, um, um we're uh, yeah. in the middle of the, so, so now we know, um, they're taking the casualties over there. Charlie, is it Charlie? Yeah. Yeah. Charlie company. Second one away. We, we are getting reports that, uh, they're engaged down by route heat. And uh, 60th over on the uh, southeastern corner of the city. And I remember they were to uh, pop red smoke and we were to look for the red smoke as we made our way from our position. Uh, We were more in the western part of the city. And we started moving out down uh, Route Heat. Route Heat runs east-west and it's the southernmost uh, major named route that we had that ran um, east west and we were coming down route heat we we're moving east and uh that's when charlie those guys in charlie company were they were they had casualties and they were they were moving out they were moving west along route heat because they were going to go to uh take care of what they needed to and so i remember i remember having to elevate the bradley's uh, weapons. I elevated my gun as I was over at the intersection of Route Heat and 40th, uh, looking north up 40th, up toward where that green mosque was. And uh, and Ferris told me to elevate the gun um, because we had these friendly vehicles moving in front of us. And so I elevated the gun because I don't want to shoot anybody that's on our side. And then they'd passed, and I depressed the gun back down and as I was looking to the uh, northeast, out up toward the intersection of 40th and Route Jazz, uh, route, you know, out there, I couldn't tell you what it was now. It was maybe six or 800 meters away. I could see guys, dark figures, hiding behind some, in my mind, it always looked like a, a tractor engine, but it was just some piece of industrial equipment or something metallic block. Uh, on the ground and there were guys behind it and uh and there were little little twinkling lights back there and i knew right off the bat it's like they're they're shooting at us (laughs) and so i that's what i said into my into my helmet to communicate that to ferris like hey they're shooting at us and uh and there's all this radio traffic in my ears because we had not just one radio but two in there we had the and so we had the the platoon net and uh and some other frequency pulled up, and and I I, I just said again, yeah, they're shooting at us, and maybe and I I never I didn't get a fire command. I also didn't do a very good job giving distance, direction, and description. But <laughs> after a moment, <laughs> after a moment, I just said fuck this, and I I had the coax punched up, and I just started putting rounds on there. Mm-hmm. I just a moment before I had elevated my weapon to let friendly troops you know pass and so just like the night before when i was 
firing warning shots. I was like, God, I hope that, you know, as I'm doing this, that this doesn't go awry. And, you know, thankfully my rounds were hitting down in the target area. Um, and, but the coax, um, those seven, six, two rounds, the machine gun was not suppressing the enemy there. And so I punched up the 25 millimeter high explosive, uh, rounds for that beautiful, beautiful M242, uh, Bushmaster gun. And I made for the only time during that deployment, the fucking rookie gunner mistake. Brown, can you guess what I forgot to do when I switched from my coax to the 25 mic mic? You didn't laze the target. I forgot to laze the target. And so my goddamn barrel was still elevated up too high. Um, and the first, my sensing round went way over the engagement area, out over some buildings, and then exploded 2,000 meters away. Damn. But then I laced the target. <laughs> and then I started putting 25 mic mic rounds on that enemy position. Mm-hmm. And then, in short order, alpha section with uh, my Bravo 25 vehicle and the lieutenant's Bravo 26 vehicle, we were moving out. And we're moving north. And, and Brown, you're in the back of the vehicle with me, weren't you? You were back there with the Gill and the first squad? Yep. Fucking A. So we're moving out. And now I, I, I know that you know, by now, I think Baggett's probably gone off to rescue the headquarters element. And He's always moving. He's always, always moving. And I had forgotten until I read that this piece <laughs> by that Matthews guy that we did not have our fourth Bradley that day. We did not have the Bravo 2A track. And I don't know why. So we were operating with 75% of our platoon strength Bradley-wise. Baggett took two Bravo 2-7 off to the east to rescue the headquarters platoon and have let Griffin save Love's ass. <laughs> and um, the Alpha section, we started moving up north. And, they were and we started moving up, moving up 40th. And as we're getting closer up to 40th and Jazz, I, I could see that, that, that my... The 25 millimeter rounds, HE rounds that I put on those guys shooting at us had achieved the desired effect. Uh, we didn't linger long to look at bodies, but there were bodies down there, and they weren't shooting at us anymore. And we were keep, and we just continued to move up north along this road, and we were in a target-rich environment. There were people seemingly in every alley, and they'd run down the alley and I'd chase them with machine gun bullets and they'd be standing out there and I'd engage them. There was a, uh, as we got past those, those first guys that, uh, I killed. <laughs> I, I don't mean anyone who's listening. I apologize for my language and my laughter. It's not meant to be callous. It's, it's, it's what it is. Um, you're explaining. <clears throat> No, yeah, no, but and 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 like we talked about uh, when we were on the phone earlier, um, who who you are when you're deployed uh, to combat in a, in a combat role, and who you are after that when you're home years later or the next day, whatever the case is, it's it's two different versions of yourself. And when you're in combat, like like I said on the like on the phone, you have to be the most ruthless, the most savage version of yourself that you can be. And I, I've said for the longest that like you have to allow yourself to go a little bit insane, 
uh, in, in those situations or else you'll go completely insane after the fact and just be swallowed up with, with grief and guilt and, and all of that stuff. But you have to understand the role that we were in. Um, and, and like Tyree and I have talked about uh, just the other day, like we're not trying to glorify combat. We're not trying to glorify killing. We're not trying to glorify or romanticize any of this stuff. Like we'll, we're telling the story because mm-hmm. one, it needs to be told Two, like Walker, your story needs to be told. And we want people to understand that like the regular uh, fighting soldier or Marine or sailor or airman or whatever. um, You're regular that trigger. Yeah. Like we experience things and we do things and our stories deserve to be told as well. Yeah. yeah. And so we're not, we're not, we're not, we're not telling these stories so that people listening can be like, Oh man, that's fucking badass. It's so cool to like, you know, the way he was telling the story about shooting machine guns at people and then just dropping. Like, that's not, that's not what we're doing. We don't want you to yeah. think that this is like, no. we're not, we're not this. It, <clears throat> it's not a pity thing either. Yeah. No, we're not. We're no, not, no, I, I get it. Not. And it, you know, to touch on something you, you mentioned there, Johnson, um, about having to bring forth from within you something that, is uh, called for in that moment. I am a father and I have children. I never want them to see me as a monster. Yeah. But there is a part of you, the monster, there's a monster within all of us and there's an appropriate time for that to come out. And that time is uh, when your life is, on the line. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right, man. But hey, at dude, the I, time I was, you, Brown, you were in the back did, did, and, and we had the, we had a little speaker back in that troop compartment with the, so you guys could hear the radio communications. You remember I was, I was, I was just screaming, like swearing at these guys. Yeah. I didn't, uh, for one sitting in the back of the Bradley, uh, for anyone who knows it's a dark, smelly, loud, <laughs> smelly, when people are outside shooting at you, it's a it's a totally different place, yeah. and it's even more dark. And when those rounds are going off, it's it, it only sounds like someone's knocking on the door when you're sitting in the back. But I know it's loud as hell on the outside. And <clears throat> when I, during that whole thing, me and Gil are staring at each other either grinning like idiots or freaking out and then I'm looking at Caldwell next to me and he's freaking out like we're half the half the people these badass motherfuckers back here are fucking losing their shit because we can hear the the mind the fucking crazy shit going on on the outside it's fucking it's insanity going on on the outside and then to hear uh, what you guys are communicating to each other was even more insane, and then the fact that we couldn't do a fucking thing in the back was even more oh, insane. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that whole thing, man, like of, of of everything that I can remember vividly, that particular day in the back of that Bradley, listening to you guys with targets was yeah insane. Yeah, it blew my mind. Like. Like to the floor, I'm shaking right now. 
I, I, I will say on that. So I was the RTO at the time. So I was able to listen to like all the communications and everything. And I will say, I, I don't know if this, if we've ever talked about this before on the show, but like, I will say like listening to the communication between the Bradleys, um, it was just, I mean, it was beautiful. So I, 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 in the, in the, when I was active duty, right. Like I, I, I was primarily a machine gunner, right. So I was, I was a machine gunner for two and a half years. Uh, me and Billy Jack was my AG, you know, Webster was a gunner, um, all these great machine gunners. Right. And I just remember being on the ranges and they, they would always talk about like talking the guns, right? Like one, yeah. gun, one gun would give off a burst. The next gun would give off a burst. The next gun would give off a burst. And that's just, when you have a bunch of experienced machine gunners and they're able to be on the line and they're like, and they're talking their guns, the way that sounds is, is fucking beautiful, right? It's music. <laughs> it, yeah. Listening to you guys on the radios and like the way y'all communicated, um, like sh- uh, short uh, transmissions, but accurate to the point. And everybody was on. It was just. It was the same thing, man. It was art. I well, swear. And, and we have um, all of our prior training aside. We had one person to thank for keeping us uh, focused in, in our communications, um, mm-hmm. and that was Baggett, uh, because we we were moving up fortieth. Uh, uh, I was in. You know, I had switched over the 25 mic mic. I put down that first enemy position. I switched over the coax. I was putting rounds down alleyways and engaging other targets. Sw- I found this one guy running to seek cover behind a, a metal gate. He, you know, all of the houses over there had courtyards that were walled and they all had metal gates. Mm-hmm. And this fella, <laughs> he opened the gate, ran behind it, and I put a burst of uh, high explosive rounds right at the base of that gate where the gate met the ground. And the explosion lifted that man up onto that thing like a surfboard, threw him up into the air and, and tumbled him like a rag doll and dropped him down into the road. And I got a communication from at that time in Bravo two six, the gunner was Sergeant Bush and uh, he was in there with Lieutenant Gunther. And well, Sergeant Bush comes over. He calls me up on the radio. He's like, Oh man, you shot that guy. I thought he fell off a roof. And I was like, yeah, that was pretty cool. Huh? Was like, and Bush came back again. He's like, Oh yeah, I, th- I thought he did this. And immediately, Baggett put the stop to that. He's like, hey, he came on the radio. He's like, suck each other's dicks later. Get back in the fight. And I, and I keyed up my mic. I was like, yeah, Roger. And that was the end of it. Like, there were a couple times where that army discipline kicked mm-hmm. in where I realized, oh, okay, I'm getting caught up in the moment. But then someone says one thing and, you know, I just yeah. lock it up, so to speak, and I'm back in the fight, clear-headed and focused. It, it's really crazy how, like, um, you know, like, I'm, I'm you know, like, how that happens. You know what I mean? Like, cause you, we, we're still human, right? We still have those human moments, but then somebody yeah. reminds us that like, Hey, we're still in, in, in the shit, right? We're yeah. still involved in something, engaged in something. And it's just immediate, like snap back. Oh yeah. Roger shit. And you're back on target. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I got a, I got a question for you. Yeah. While all this is going on at some point, you, you gotta know, um, their efforts are useless. No, never entered my mind. Never entered your mind at all. No, man, we were just too busy engaging targets and fighting. Like the idea that 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 this was a cakewalk for me, and that these people were, you know, melting away and you know giving up the fight. It was no, I was fucking in it to win it from the get go. Like I was not going to let my guard down. I was not going to 
try to think that it was over like from the beginning until we got back to Brassfield Mora that night. Thank you for explaining that because there's a lot of people who are like, Oh, it sounds like they were, they had an easy time. Like, no, man, it was, (laughs) if you ever talk about easy, uh, if you ever talk about having like high, uh, you're always high alert. Like imagine that times 300 million. And literally it not turning off until you, like you said, you get back into Brassfield. And even then, even yeah. then. I mean, you I got to ride but, that out. Like, imagine riding that, try to get some sleep that night. Holy fuck. Good well, you talked, oh, in, Walker, you talked about, you talked about the adrenaline dump um, on the night when the Abrams got hit, you know, yeah. and, and, and getting, getting the trembles and everything else. I mean, like when, when your adrenaline is coursing through your body and you have so much of it in there, your body, you have to be able to like get rid of it somehow or expend that energy or something. So with enough engagements, like it becomes second nature, really. Like, you know, the adrenaline dump's going to come. There's going to be a little bit of a tremble and then, and then boom, you're off to the races. Right. Or, and then afterwards, you know, that like once the fight's over, there's going to be a little bit of a come down. Um, you know, your, your hormones are going to be all over the place. You might be a little more emotional. might be a little more this, a little less that, whatever you do that for an entire year and your entire body becomes reprogrammed. Like your, your mind becomes reprogrammed, um, to react to certain things or to, uh, to respond differently to, uh, external, you know, stimuli. And, you know, does that ever really go away? I mean, maybe it changes, but like it is, it is one of those things that like, you know, I can remember being home, walking with my sister to the unemployment office and uh, stepping around a corner in a car backfiring and me like, like immediately jumping back behind that corner and ready to like, Oh wait, I don't have a gun. My sister being like, what, what the, what, what, are you, what the fuck are you doing? Uh, uh, not car back. It's nothing. Go, let's go. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And uh, it, so it, it is, it is really kind of, you know, like, and I've, I've, I've often thought like, the people we were fighting over there, you know, they, you know, they had old AK 47s or RPKs or RPGs or, you know, they're wiring together, whatever they could find to, to make it happen. Well, we have, you know, we're one of the most technologically advanced militaries on the planet. As long and, as it's working. Right. Yeah. And you know, like the night of Baton, like the first night of Baton Rouge, you know, it's pitch, you know, it's dark outside. We have night vision and thermals and all of this equipment, you know, we have you know the AC one thirties, you know, hovering in the air and all this, all this available equipment to us. And these guys are running out in the middle of the street with you know, flip flops and AKs and, you know, and it's just a, you know, a cakewalk, so to speak. But at the same time, like your head is still always on a swivel because yeah. the moment you let your guard down or, um, and I like to remind people of this, the moment you begin to disrespect your enemy is the moment that they can get you. Right, you have to respect who you're fighting, um, and I think yeah, you should. And that was going to be my next question: was what did you think about the uh, the enemy we came across? And and you hit it right on the nail. Like you better respect that motherfucker, or uh, it'd be your last days, man. It doesn't matter who the enemy is. It doesn't matter for fighting, you know, a, a well advanced um, uh, enemy force like you know, like say when you go to war with Russia or China, which is now in the news or whatever. Or if we go to to go 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 fight those those folks. Um, living on that island off the coast of India that people aren't allowed to go to. You know what I'm talking about? You, have you heard of that island? Sure. No, they've uh, been living. They, they, they're, they're so, they're so primitive, right? Like they don't even understand like the Oh yeah. World. Yeah. Why would you want to go fuck with those people? Leave those people alone. Right. No, for sure. But my, my point is it, it doesn't matter if you're fighting. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you're, if we're going to war against, 
you know, England or those people. Like you still have to respect who you're fighting. Oh, I thought you were saying we're going to roll up over there and fuck with those. No, I'm saying, no, I'm saying you have to respect whoever it is you're fighting, regardless of what their capabilities are. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm sorry. Um, (laughs) Stay in the conversation. I'm I'm here, man. Fuck. Yeah. I'm looking at all these lights. I'm like, Uh, we might have to take a quick little break. Uh, just to save um, space, and we can come right back. We'll give everyone the time to stretch, refreshments, <clears throat> and uh, get right back into this. Yeah, sounds good, guys. Yeah, sounds good. All yeah. right, so we're gonna do that with uh, with Walker here. On before I forget, we'll be right back. <laughs> 